If you would stand with me as we read from God's word and worship by hearing his word read to us publicly. We are looking at Habakkuk chapter 2 verses 4 through 20. If you don't have a Bible with you, you'd like to read along, grab a pew Bible in front of you and turn to page 534. And we are looking at one of the minor prophets who has a very major message looking at tough questions. God, why do you leave sin unpunished so long? Habakkuk chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. Behold the proud. His soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. Indeed, because he transgresses by wine, he is a proud man, and he does not stay at home. Because he enlarges his desire as hell, and he is like death and cannot be satisfied, he gathers to himself all nations and heaps up for himself all peoples. Shall not these take up a proverb, a proverb against him and a taunting riddle against him and say, Woe to him who increases what is not his. How long? And to him who loads himself with many pledges, will not your creditors rise up suddenly? Will they not awaken who oppress you, and you will become their booty? Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnants of the people shall plunder you. Because of men's blood and the violence of the land and of the city and all who dwell in it. Woe to him who covets evil gain for his house, that he may set his nest on high, that he may be delivered from the power of disaster. You gave shameful counsel to your house, cutting off many peoples, and sinned against your soul. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the timbers will answer it. Woe to him who builds a town with bloodshed, who establishes a city by iniquity. Behold, is it not the Lord of hosts that the peoples labor to feed the fire and nations weary themselves in vain? For the, Lord, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbor, pressing him to your bottle, even to make him drunk that you may look on his nakedness. You are filled with shame instead of glory. You also drink and be exposed as uncircumcised. The cup of the Lord's right hand will be turned against you and utter shame will be on your glory. For the violence done to Lebanon will cover you and the plunder of beasts which made them afraid because of men's blood and the violence of the land and the city and all who dwell in it. What profit is the image? that its maker should carve it, the molded image, a teacher of lies, that the maker of its mold should trust in it to make mute idols. Woe to him who says to wood, Awake to silent stone, arise, and it shall teach. Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and in it there is no breath at all. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let the earth keep silence before him. Let's pray. Father, we're humbled as we read these passages and we can think and see this played out in our lives, in our culture, in our nation. 
And as your people, God, we do wonder, how long, when will your wrath be released? But Lord, we're humbled too as your people, for we know, like Israel, we have sinned. And we are guilty of some of these same and in some ways all of these sins in our hearts. And yet we're covered by your blood. You are the blessed redeemer that we have heard about and sung about. And so, Father, as people who are covered by your righteousness, your grace, and the hope of your gospel, we still long to see your justice. We long to see you filling the earth with your glory. So help us to understand what this passage means, what it means to us, where we live, where we're at as a church. Be with our pastor, anoint him, enable him to be a vessel used of you. May our hearts be open and may we be silent as you speak to us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, today we are continuing in our series that we began a few weeks ago, a series that we are calling Answering Life's Toughest Questions from this little minor book that, as Chris said, has a major message, a book in the Old Testament by the name of Habakkuk. The prophet Habakkuk lived during a time of great sinfulness among God's people. And so he is overwhelmed. He is overwhelmed by all the sin that he sees surrounding him. And more than that, he is confused by God's apparent tolerance of so much sin around him. And even God's silence to his prayers. As he cries out, how long, Lord, will you do tolerate the sins of your people? And so the first question Habakkuk brings to his Lord is, where is God when I need him? Perhaps you have asked that question as well. Where is God when I need him in my life? And we learn that God's answer is, I am working even when you don't see it. And he tells Habakkuk, listen, I am raising up the godless, ruthless Babylonians, as a tool to judge the sins of my people. Well, as you can imagine, this caused Habakkuk to ask a second question before God, and even a complaint before God, and God, are you really fair? How can you do this? How can you use the, the more sinful Babylonians to judge a well, quote, less sinful people like us? which kind of goes to the core of his problem, because in his mind he's looking at the sins of the Babylonians and comparing them to the sins of his own people. But in God's eyes, there isn't any difference. But he's still asking, God, are you really fair in this? And we saw last Sunday that God's answer is, listen, tough times are coming. Tough times are coming, so get ready and trust me. Well, today we want to answer our third question, and that is, does God leave sin unpunished? And as we think about this question, let me ask you another question. How many of you hate it when you see people, quote, getting away with stuff? Does that irritate you? Does that kind of make you cringe? Man, I can't believe they're getting away with that. For example, you're driving down the highway going to speed limit, 
and some speed demon passes you by going 90 miles an hour, and your first thought is, man, I hope he gets a ticket. Where's that officer when he gave me a ticket last week? Where is he now? Right? Or on a more serious note, your justice meter kind of redlines when you read the news or you, you watch the news and you think to yourself, man, this is not right what's happening in our city, in our nation, even in our world. All the injustice and the rampant immorality and violence that's going on, it just isn't right. God, where are you in this? In fact, it causes you to wonder, is God ever going to do anything about it? Is he going to step in and, and right all the wrongs in our country? Because I need to know if he is a God who says he is a God of justice. This was the question that was confounding Habakkuk. He was asking God this question as he contemplated the wickedness of the Babylonians. Does God leave sin unpunished? And when faced with the fact that God was about to, to raise up and use this evil people, the Babylonians, to bring judgment against God's people, man, let me tell you, it was more than he could take. He was about to lose it. But instead of abandoning God, Habakkuk embraced God. He went to his watchtower and he waited for God to answer him. He went to the watchtower to get God's perspective of the world in which he was living in. And what we're going to see here in this passage this morning is that God answered Habakkuk's question. And by the time God's done with his answer, Habakkuk comes away. In other words, he comes down from the watchtower with a panoramic view of God's perspective. Folks, that's what we need this morning. We need God's perspective. As, as we live in this world, as we watch this world, as we coexist, if you will, in this world, we are, we are squeezed by our culture's perspective, and we need God's perspective on this. Now, God's answer begins in verse 4 of the second chapter here. And as Chris read for us, it continues all the way to the end of the chapter, to verse 20. But I want you to notice that God first contrasts two groups of people when he says in verse 4, Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. And so immediately you see there's two groups of people God is talking about. In fact, there are only two groups of people in the world even today. There is the first group, the proud, that is people who, who trust themselves. And then there is the just or the righteous, people who trust God. People who trust themselves, they submit to no one. But people who trust God, they submit to God. And the contrast here is really between a people of faith and a people who arrogantly trust themselves and they leave God out of their lives. And to the proud, God says their soul is not upright. What does that mean? It means their inner appetites, their, their desires within them are, are not right. They're, they're crooked, they're sinful, they're selfish. In other words, they delight in things that God abhors. And of course, the immediate context here, in which we're reading in this little book here, is in reference, it applies to the Babylonians, that nation, that evil, ruthless nation, 
the Babylonians were, were puffed up with pride over their military might and their great achievements. They had built the most powerful empire in the world, which they thought was invincible. King Nebuchadnezzar even expresses their arrogance in Daniel chapter 4, verse 30, when he says, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built for a royal dwelling in my mighty power for the honor of my majesty? You can just hear the arrogance and the pride in what he's saying there. In verses 5 through 20, what you have in these verses here is God's description of and even God's judgment on a life that does not put its trust in God, but puts its trust in themselves. In these verses, we find what scholars call a, a taunt song. Now, in our culture, we see taunting all the time. We see it in sports. NBA playoffs are going on. You see taunting all the time. College, football, especially in football, college, NFL, taunting. You see it at school. You may hear it at school. There's taunting. And this is a taunt song. By the way, there are two songs in this little book of Habakkuk. There's one here in chapter 2, which we're going to look at. And then the one comes later in chapter 3. And whether you realize it or not, your life and my life sings one of these two songs. Either a song of trust in ourselves or a song of trust in God Almighty. Now, if you look down through the text, you'll notice that this taunt song is outlined by the word woe. Woe. What is that word? It's a powerful word. It's a word, it's a prediction of judgment. It literally means the calamity has fallen or is about to fall. Five times in this text we see the foretelling of God's judgment on his people. Woe. 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 These five woes show the judgment and misery of the person who thinks he or she can live their lives without God, that they can make a life without God and succeed. Before the song begins, though, God gives us a title for the song in verses 4 or 5. We could call it the puffed up one. And it's been number one in God's top 40 since Genesis chapter 3. This Babylonian king is prideful, he's arrogant and never at rest. His heart is filled with greed, coveting everything he sees, pursuing it like a drunk does alcohol, believing the next drink will satisfy, but it never does. No wonder God describes him in verse 5, and he is like death and cannot be satisfied. He gathers to himself all nations and heaps up for himself all peoples. But then God asks, in verse 6, shall not all these take up a proverb against him and a taunting riddle against him and say? Now, who are all these? Well, it's all the nations who have suffered at the hands of the Babylonians and have basically cried out, enough is enough, stop. Remember, God was using the Babylonians to judge his own people. But the day was coming when God would raise up these people who were oppressed, and they in turn would taunt the Babylonians as an object lesson of his perfect justice. 
Does God leave sin unpunished? God's like, you want to know if I'm fair? You want to know if I'm a God of perfect justice? You want to know if you can trust me to balance the books of right and wrong? Listen, here's your answer. And the answer in the text is yes to the power of five. As God gives us five specific matters of injustice and then the consequence for each one of them. What I want us to do for our remainder of time here is to look at these five injustices, these five woes of judgment, if you will, on the Babylonians. Look at it, because they apply to our lives as well. They apply in our world even today. Number one, the first woe is to those who steal riches. To those who steal riches, and the consequence is sudden reversal. Notice what it says in the second half of verse 6. If you have your Bibles, look what it says. Woe to him who increases what is not his. How long? And to him who loads himself up with many pledges. As we've already seen, the Babylonians were consumed by selfish ambition and greed, and they stopped at nothing to acquire wealth and to expand their kingdom. They had hordes of stolen goods that they plundered from helpless people. And the phrase, many pledges, means that the Babylonians exacted heavy taxation on their conquered nations. And such action often accompanied loans with excessive interest made to the poor. Here's the point. It's a woe on stealing riches because it leads to a sudden reversal in life. Look what it says in verses 7 and 8. Will not your creditors rise up suddenly? Will they not awaken who oppress you? And you will become their booty. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you. Because of men's blood and the violence of the land and the city and of all who dwell in it. God is warning here that the Babylonians, that their creditors would one day rise up to condemn them and collect what was due. Then the Babylonians will become their victims. And that's exactly what happened. God was true on his word. When the Persians invaded Babylon and overthrew Belshazzar, you can read about it in Daniel chapter 5, the Babylonians plundered other nations, and now she was going to be plundered. The Babylonians had shed rivers of blood in their quest for more riches, and now her blood was going to be shed. It's a basic law of the universe that eventually we do reap what we sow. There's a sudden reversal to people who are so greedy, they'll do anything to acquire more stuff, more riches. How many of you observe greed on a fairly regular basis? It's pretty easy to do in our culture today. You probably observe it, maybe in your neighbors, maybe at work, maybe even in your own family. Many of you go to work where people are cutting corners, they're breaking rules, and they're doing unethical things because of greed. And sometimes you think, man, if I said that, I could sell that too. Man, if I did that on my expense report, I could gain. And you're in this wrestling match between what God wants you to do as a Christ follower and what everyone else is doing to kind of get ahead in life. And maybe you wonder, am I crazy for holding to God's standards? Is God ever going to do anything about this? 
Well, God says all these greedy people are going to experience a sudden reversal in life, either in this life or in the next life. Does God leave sin unpunished? And the answer is no. Number two, the second woe is to those who covet stuff. Those who covet stuff, and the consequence is a subtle regret. We see this woe in verse 9. Look what it says. Woe to him who covets evil gain for his house, that he may set his nest on high, that he may be delivered from the power of disaster. You see, the Babylonians, get this, they took land that wasn't theirs in order to build an empire that glorified them and assured them of safety and security. Picture a captain of the Babylonian army for a moment. He wants to rise to a high position. He wants to enjoy its rewards, to have a big house and to be secure in his house. And so he cuts down a force that doesn't belong to him, that belongs to someone else. And from the trees of that forest, he makes great beams for his home. And then he destroys someone else's home. You know why he does that? So he can take the stones from that home and make, use it for his own house. And when he is finished, he has a beautiful house, a nest on high, as Habakkuk describes it, that he thinks will make him happy, that he thinks will make him secure, bring him safety, bring him satisfaction in life. And of course, this was a false security because no individual can build a house big enough or high enough to keep God out. You know, in the same way, a lot of people are spending their lives for greed. Why? So they can set themselves up with a pretty secure situation. They're like, man, I've got my big house, I've got my 401k and my IRA, and I'm feeling pretty good about my life, and I've got nothing to worry about. Nothing can touch me. Why do people do this? Well, notice what it says at the end of verse 9. That he may set his nest on high, that he may be delivered from the power of disaster. Now, you may be able to set yourself from the reach of human harm, but if you live with greed in your heart, and if you live with coveting things, you'll never be safe from the reach of God's judgment. What will be the consequence of those who covet stuff? Well, it's a settled regret, God tells us. This word settled here, it's the idea that it's, it's not going away. And the word regret is one of the worst feelings a person can have or a person can feel. Look what it says in verses 10 through 11. In verse 10, it says, You give shameful counsel to your house, cutting off many peoples, and sin against your soul. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the timbers will answer it. In other words, instead of having houses and families that bring honor to God, they will have disgrace and shame and eventually lose their lives. God says that the walls of their houses will testify against them of their settled regret within their hearts. Now, don't miss this, because the picture here is worth a thousand words. Get the picture in your mind of what Habakkuk is saying here. The picture is of a person who spent his whole life trying to gain financial security, and he's finally sitting in his dream house, and he's like, yeah, check this out, man. This is the life. And then all of a sudden, 
he starts hearing voices from the walls of his house cry out, this is it? This is what you gave your life for? You think this is so great that you've had to have all this? You think this is what gives your life meaning and happiness and satisfaction? Are you happy now? Look at the people you stepped on. Look at the corners you cut along the way. And you're so alone. You've lost all that really matters to have the things that don't matter. You think that was a great plan? You forfeited your, your life in the process. In other words, Habakkuk is telling us that even the stones and the beams will cry out, Loser! You're a big loser! Look what you did with your life! You lived it for yourself instead of living it for God and His mission and His kingdom. Now, this is a word of encouragement. And you're like, really? Let me tell you, this is a, this is a huge word of encouragement to those of us who are not coveting stuff and not living for things and not banking your security on what you have, but rather you are seeking first the kingdom of God with your life. You are living for the Lord's mission. You are living to honor Him and please Him. And some days you say to yourself, man, am I nuts for doing this and living this way? Am I the only one on this program here? Does God see what all these people are doing? Is God ever going to? And the answer is yes. God says woe to those who covet stuff because their consequence is a settled regret in their hearts. Why? Because riches don't make you happy. Now that's got to be the most obvious statement in the history of our country, and yet how many people buy into this myth? You see it over and over again. For example, John D. Rockefeller said, I've made my millions, but they have brought me no happiness. I would trade it all for the days that I sat on an office stool in Cleveland and counted myself rich on $3 a week. Mr. Vanderbilt said, the care of $200 million is too great a load for any brain or back to bear. It is enough to kill anyone. I have no pleasure in it. John Acups Astor, one of the wealthiest men in the history of America, said, I am the most miserable man on earth. Andrew Carnegie made this observation, millionaires seldom smile. Listen, money doesn't make you happy. Stuff doesn't make you happy. Jesus Christ and living for him is what makes you happy and satisfied and fulfilled in life. So don't regret the choices that you make. Don't regret the life you've chosen and the path that you're walking on as a Christ follower here. Moms, don't regret being a mom and fulfilling the role that God has given you. Woe, number three, woe to those who exploit others. And the consequence is shallow return. We see this woe in verse 12. Woe to him who builds a town with bloodshed, who establishes a city by iniquity. This woe accuses the Babylonians of being ruthless tyrants and building luxurious palaces and cities by means of bloodshed and forced labor that was exploited to the fullest extent. This word bloodshed means they built their towns and cities with murder. It may seem like, and I'm sure we've all said it, Man, they're getting away with murder. But God's answer is, no, they're not. It may seem that way now, but no, they're not. 
The Babylonians were ruthless warriors, but only partially different from the ruthless business people today who build their careers by exploiting others. Think about all the corporate crooks in America that have made headline news in just the, the last 20 years. There's the Bernie Madoff Ponzi scheme. You got the Freddie Mac, Freddie Mae scandal, Lehman Brothers scandal, Wall Street scandal, you name it, one scandal after another. Go back a few more years. How many of you remember Enron? Did you know that senior executives at Enron were paid $744 million in cash and stocks before the company collapsed, and 144 of Enron's top managers were given retention bonuses even though they knew the company was going to declare bankruptcy? WorldCom. Anybody remember WorldCom? Bygone phone company, once the nation's number two long-distance phone company, gave out $400 million in loans to its CEO as the company was failing. And in the process, the employees and families are the ones who suffer the most, losing their jobs in retirement. You can't help but say to yourself, that is so wrong. Does God see any of this? You better believe God sees it, and he says something about it as well. God says their consequence will be a shallow return on their investment. Look at verse 13. Behold, is it not of the Lord of hosts that the people's labor to feed the fire, and nations weary themselves in vain? In other words, it's not from the Lord that people labor for fire and weary themselves for nothing. How many of you have bought a new piece of furniture within the last year for your home? Oh, yeah, there's some of us here. Nothing wrong with that. Great. Good for you. Bought a new piece of furniture. You know where it's going, don't you? That new piece of furniture you just bought. You know where it's going? That piece of furniture, along with all the other stuff in your house we work so hard to buy, is going in the fire. That'll make you happy, won't it? According to 2 Peter 3.12, this world and everything in it is going to be burned up as he brings a new heaven and new earth. I can't wait for that glorious day. Now that last phrase, and nations weary themselves in vain. The word nations here simply means all the peoples of the world. And what are they doing? Working, working, working. Monday through Friday, working, working, working. Saturday and Sunday, working, working, working. And for what? For nothing, God says. In vain. It's not from God that people should spend their lives working for nothing. God's like, you think I support this? All this working for stuff that's going to burn? Why? It's a shallow return on your investment. Now here's a red-hot investment tip. Are you ready for it? Invest your life in God's mission. Invest your life in God's kingdom. Because verse 14 says... For the earth will be filled with the glory of the knowledge of the Lord. Want to invest in something that will last forever with a guaranteed return on your investment? Here it is. God's kingdom. Because the earth will be filled with the glory of God. And the question is, are you working on this investment strategy? The next time you wonder, is it worth living for the Lord and investing in his kingdom when everyone around you is seeking to get ahead in this life? Remember what God says. Does God leave sin unpunished? No way. Number four, four, the fourth woe, is to those who betray friends. To those who betray friends, and the consequence is shameful relations. 
Notice what it says in verse 15. Look at it with me. Verse 15, woe to him who gives drink to his neighbor, pressing him to your bottle, even to make him drunk, that you may look on his nakedness. Now the word neighbor here is a reference to to special relationships, and drink is not a reference to water, but to alcohol. Did you know that in the U.S., 15 million people are affected by alcohol abuse or dependency? Maybe some of you live with someone who is an alcoholic. you got someone in your family who's an alcoholic. Or perhaps you struggle with alcohol yourself. There are 100 deaths approximately annually in the United States due to alcohol. 50% of domestic violence and 75% of child abuse cases are related to alcohol. More than 42 million children live in alcohol-dependent houses, and 50% of them will become alcoholics themselves. Alcohol is the leading cause of death among people 13 to 24 years of age. And when you think about these effects of alcohol, have you ever asked yourself, man, who is getting all these kids, all these young people into alcohol? Who's getting them to start drinking? Who's giving the first drink? Who's buying the first drink for them? Because they're going to have a lot to answer for when they stand before God. Getting family members, neighbors, and friends into alcohol, listen, they are betraying their friends and family. And God says, woe to him who gives drink to his neighbor, even to make him drunk, that you may look on his nakedness. Isn't it interesting how alcohol and sensual behavior often go hand in hand? Have you noticed that in commercials? Now, I know that the vast majority of you here this morning, you have personal convictions about alcohol. While I'm not here to stand and say that God says in his word, thou shalt not drink, because God's word does not say that. What you find in God's word is always warnings about alcohol and commands to abstain from being drunk. But as God's people, I know many of you have convictions about alcohol. That is, you've decided that alcohol is not going to be a part of your life. In fact, you're not not even going to serve it in your home. But perhaps, as you have made that conviction and that decision to live by, you are wondering to yourself, is this a silly decision that I made? I look at my neighbors and the choices they're making and the things I miss out on and decide not to participate in. Am I crazy for this? And I would say to you, the answer is, No. Look at God's judgment on those who betray their friends with alcohol. Their consequences, shameful relations. Verse 16 says, you are filled with shame instead of glory. You also drink and be exposed as uncircumcised. That word uncircumcised is a reference to their ungodly nature. And the very thing in which they glorified would become the object of their shame. Verse 16, the cup of the Lord's right hand will be turned against you, and utter shame will be on your glory. And cup is a metaphor, in other words, referring to God's judgment and wrath served up by his powerful right hand. Verse 17, it says, for the violence done to Lebanon will cover you, and the plunder of beasts which made them afraid because of men's blood and the violence of the land and the city and of all who dwell in it. Now remember, this is the context of this passage is to encourage Habakkuk and to encourage God's people during this time, just as it is to encourage you and I today. And it's to encourage us to trust God 
as we follow Jesus in this life. With this in mind, let me ask you, what do you tell a dad who's sobbing because his son's been killed by a drunk driver? What do you tell a wife who's in a marriage with an alcoholic husband and the home is being torn to shreds by the consuming addiction of a single person in the home in his rage and anger when he's drunk? Now, there's no easy answers to these questions, but here's what we do know, is that God is working even when we don't see it, and God doesn't let sin go unpunished. Well, there's a last woe here that God gives. Number five, woe to those who worship idols. And the consequence is silent religion. We see this last woe in verse 19, but it begins in verse 18. Look what he says, what he writes. He asks the question, what profit is the image that its maker should carve it, the molded image, a teacher of lies, that the teacher of its mold should trust in it to make mute idols? Woe to him who says to wood, awake, to silent stone, arise, it shall teach. Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, yet in it there is no breath at all. Idolatry. Idol worship. What is it? Well, we don't have a lot of time here, but basically we can boil it down to this. It's worshiping and serving false gods instead of serving the one true living God, which is the essence of all false religions in our world today. The Bible teaches us that there is one way to the one true God found through Jesus Christ who says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And there are many false religions of the world, including Buddhism, Hinduism, mysticism, animism, the occult, witchcraft, Islam, Mormonism, Jehovah Witness, and the list goes on. This is the idolatry of our day. Every form of false religion, including the biggest one in our country, the worship of self and self-gratification. That is our gods of America. And notice God's assessment of these false religions in verse 18. He says it's profitless, and it's a teacher of lies. In other words, all these false religions promise something that they can never deliver, and that is access to God, peace with God, a life of fulfillment because you have a mission of God now to live for. And most of all, it's a silent religion or a powerless religion. In other words, there's no life in it. It can't offer any life to its worshipers. It keeps you dead spiritually. Why? Because God says at the, verse, at the end of verse 19, yet in it there is no breath at all. These gods are worthless, pointless, powerless. There's only one true God that can impart spiritual life into our dead lives. And that is God himself, almighty God on high, through our faith in his son, Jesus Christ. He's the one that regenerates the heart, gives us a new heart, and allows us to live in this world on mission for God. That's what the gospel is all about. That's why we preach the gospel, because it's the power unto salvation for both the Jews and the Greeks. In other words, for everyone. 
Habakkuk's question is, does God leave sin unpunished? And we find God's answer is no. No, do not think I leave sin unpunished. No way. I will judge the sins of the Babylonians, God says. God assures Habakkuk that the pride of the Babylonians will come to a woeful end and that anyone in Judah who humbly trusts God will gain his life just because the Babylonian army prides itself on its strength, enjoys a season of victory over the nation of Judah. That does not mean they were justified in God's sight. They were not. So judgment was going to fall on them too. It's not a matter of will God judge sin. It's a matter of when he will do so. And for Habakkuk, the message was clear. Stop complaining. Stop doubting me. And instead, trust me. I'm working. I'm in control. I am sovereign over all of this. God is not indifferent to sin. He's not insensitive to our suffering. And he is not inactive to do anything about it. God is in control. And in his perfect time, God will accomplish his divine purpose. Until then, God tells Habakkuk, you are to stand in humble silence and wait for my intervention. Now, let me bring this to an applicational point for us. In other words, what does this mean for us here today? What, what do I go home with? How do I apply this to my life? Let me leave you with lessons of hope, three lessons of hope to embrace. First lesson of hope is God's glory will fill the earth. Are you excited about that? That was weak. God's glory will fill the earth. Are you excited about that? All right, much better. Notice what it says in verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In other words, who wins in the end? God wins. God's people win because of Jesus Christ. Man, we can get excited about that in contrast to the self-exaltation of the Babylonians whose efforts will crash and burn. God promised that Christ is going to return and the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. In Numbers 14, 21, God promised Moses that the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. In Psalm 72, 19, the psalmist prayed that the whole earth will be filled with his glory. And how full will God's glory fill the earth? Notice what it says. The Lord's glory will be as the waters covers the seas. And just as water fills every nook and cranny, God's glory will fill every part of the earth. Nothing or no one will escape it. So don't be discouraged here this morning, moms especially. Although this world is now filled with violence, corruption, and injustice, listen to me, one day it will be filled with God's glory. That's hope. That's hope because our God is promising that for us. That's what we live for. That's what we look forward to. Now, that's a hope worth embracing. Less, second lesson of hope. God still reigns on his throne. Are you excited about that? Amen. Look what it says in verse 20. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Holy temple is a reference to heaven from where the Lord rules and answers the prayers of those who seek him. And in contrast to the silence of idols, the living, sovereign ruler of the universe calls all the earth to be silent before him. Listen, 
empires and nations may rise and fall. But God still reigns. And He reigns on His holy throne. Therefore, let all the earth keep silence before Him. You say, yeah, but I still have a couple of questions. There's still some things I don't understand. The Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. Yeah, but I have to, i got to understand why God would let something like that happen. The Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. You say, yeah, but I've had my heart broken. I've had some things happen in my life. Bruce, you don't understand. There is comfort, but there is no promise that every question will be completely resolved on this side of heaven. There is only this. The Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. Third hope. God offers His grace to those who trust Him. Are you excited about that one? Do you know what's so wonderful about God's answer to our question? Does God leave sin unpunished? Listen to me. I know you're putting your stuff away, closing your Bibles, but listen. The wonderful thing here is not all the verses that speak of God's coming judgment on the Babylonians. That's not what is so wonderful in this passage. But rather, it's the one verse that speaks of God's grace in the life of a believer in a time of crisis. You find that verse in chapter 2, verse 4, where it says, but the just shall live by his faith. In contrast to the proud, the just, that is, those who humble themselves before God, will be preserved through their faithfulness and through God's grace. What is a just person? Who is a righteous person? Listen, it's a person who, first of all, acknowledges their sin before a holy God. And then they turn to God in that acknowledgement. And they put their faith and trust in the only person that can do anything about it and has done something about it, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. Why? Because he's the one who offers us the forgiveness of our sins and eternal life. Listen to me. The righteous are not righteous because of anything we've done. We are declared righteous by God because of our faith and trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And this brings us all the way back to where we started with two kinds of people in the world and only two kinds of people in this world today. There is the proud and there is the just or the righteous. There are people who trust in themselves. It's my life, I'll live it any way I want, and I'll make a life for myself. And then there are people who trust God. They turn from their sins, they acknowledge God as the creator and who they are accountable to, and they put their trust in God and his son, Jesus Christ. And the good news this morning for all of us here is that God offers his grace to those who trust him. God offers his grace to even you mothers out there. Isn't that good news? The question is, which one are you? Because a day is coming when God will judge the sins of the proud folks. 
just as he brought judgment on the Babylonians, and only the righteous will be safe from God's wrath. No matter who you are or what you're going through, hope is found in the grace of God through the person of Jesus Christ. Just when you're at the end of your rope and you think, where is God when I need Him? God offers His grace to those who trust Him. Just when you think you can't deal with being in a box of difficult circumstances and the question, God, are you really fair? God offers His grace to those who trust Him. Just when you think evil is on the loose and everyone seems to be getting away with stuff and you wonder, does God leave sin unpunished? Listen to me, God gives grace to those who trust Him. Now, as we come to our response time, and I realize this message has been a little longer than normal. But if we take a few minutes to respond to what we have heard this morning, here's the response. Because the bad news is God judges sin. The good news is this passage points us forward to Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. Because there is the person of Christ who has paid the penalty for my sin. So I don't have to be judged for my sins. But it's only those people who trust in what Christ did on the, on the cross and his resurrection that avoid the wrath of God and his judgment. And the question for all of us here this morning becomes, am I going to suffer under the judgment of God for my sins? Or will I trust what Jesus has already done on the cross? Some of you need to make a decision about that. You need to cross over. You need to cross over from trusting yourself and your life and your abilities and cross over and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Those of us who are already Christ's followers, believers, this is a message about confession of sin and repentance of our sin. And there's enough in this room, there's more than enough in this room, including my own sins, that during this response time, we ought to be crying out to God, forgive me, Lord. And receiving his forgiveness and claiming his promise of 1 John 1, 9 where he tells us he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us and make us righteous all over again. That is the gospel. That is the good news. So as we come to this response time, will you respond? Let's pray. Lord, we come to you this morning. We thank you for this message. Lord, this is a hard message. It's a message we don't want to hear because you judge sin. And we are sinners. But Lord, the good news is you have provided a way through your son Jesus Christ that we don't have to pay for that sin. We don't have to suffer at the hands of your wrath because your son already did on the cross. And now when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, you declare us righteous. So, Lord, I pray that your word would go forth, your spirit would work in our hearts, and you would draw people to yourself who have yet to receive the forgiveness of your sins through Jesus Christ. And for those who are already believers, that we would confess our sins, we would repent with a repentant heart, a humble heart, and claim your forgiveness. Lord, may you work during these next few moments. In your name we pray. Amen. Zach's going to sing, and as he does, this is the time to respond. Right where you're seated. God hears your prayers. He hears the heart cry. Respond.